Good morning. Our passage today is Romans 7, 13 through 25. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin, which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Thank you, Paulina. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, Before I guess I turn our attention to the text this morning, I just want to acknowledge something that... uh, We've been talking as a staff some of the things that we are convicted by as a church and as a people here at Reliance Fellowship. And this last week, we were contemplating the life of our small group ministry here at Reliance. And uh, reflecting over this last year, the challenges that we experienced, I just want to say thank you so much to each of the small group leaders who have served each of our members faithfully. I don't know, um, going into COVID, when we had like an 80% involvement in small group, how we would have done if we were at like 30. I think the culture of which fellowship and devotion towards one another, I commend those of you who are faithful to your small groups. I commend those who are faithful as leaders to your groups. Some... Um, uh, just the consistency that you have had with one another has proved fruitful. And uh, I'm thankful for each of you. For those of you at home as well, thankful that the participation with those groups continues. And for those, um, as we go forward, I think that I pray that that would continue to be a DNA of reliance. And as we look consider this morning, we have the table before us as we recognize that we don't take it by ourselves, as a people, we take it together, reflecting on the impact of which God has done in each and every single one of us individually. As a result of an individual response to Christ, we recognize that God has introduced us into his kingdom through Christ. And through that, we remind ourselves of the great day in which he'll return. And so, I think it is fitting that we are studying today's text in light of considering the table this morning. But I want to be candid with you. 
I know this passage resonates with many of you. Many over the centuries, or last several centuries, have found comfort that Paul, the apostle, struggled with sin. Now, I could stand up here this morning and I could say and quote Romans seven nineteen, For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. If I were to take Romans 7, verse 19, by itself, pluck it out of its context, disregarding everything around it, I could support this premise elsewhere within Scripture. I could turn our eyes to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, which Paul argues there, I, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For those over these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. I just want to be candid that it has been read often that Romans 7, Paul is addressing the Christian life as it relates to sin. And if I were to take Romans 7:19 by itself, we could support this from Galatians. Turn your eyes to 1 Peter, which Peter argues, Beloved, in chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. I know in this room you have might have you might have heard Romans seven preached or taught entirely different than you're going to hear it this morning. It's passages like this that uh, often remind me of how often we bring our preconceived ideas or experiences to the text. And in our experience, so often sometimes can resonate with the text. It implements or uh, informs the very way that we read it. From time to time, I'll work in my office and I'll get a phone call. And I'll say, hello, welcome. my name is Jacob. Thanks for calling Reliance. Sometimes I forget the Reliance part and say, hello, I'm Jacob. Um, but sometimes, from time to time, somebody will call and they'll ask me the question, do you guys, as a people, believe in predestination? Now, immediately when I hear that question, I pause and I think to myself, is this a trick? Um, because I know both Paul and Peter taught on predestination and foreknowledge, the very foreknowledge of God. In fact, as Peter, in Acts chapter 2, his first sermon preached to the Jews who killed Christ when he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So when I hear a person on the other line ask me the question, do you guys believe in predestination? I can't help myself but realize as a result of the conversations that they had around the topic of predestination and foreknowledge, the, the conversations were so pointed, I assume, that they caused division rather than unity. And now that conversation is brought to the text, and any time that what the conversation leads that direction, they are unable to appreciate the sovereignty of God. And I would say, as it relates to this text, I only use that as an example, I find it harder to change one's mind when they resonate with the text personally. I'm going to say things that probably have not heard before, but what I believe, and I would throw Adam under the bus too, and he has agreed. If you have a problem with how I teach it, he will answer all your questions. His email is um, it's found on the website. Um, but we do strongly agree. It's funny because it was three or four weeks ago, I walked up to Adam and I was like, so what do you believe about seven? Because we have to talk about this in seminary, but you never have to stand up before a congregation and say, this is what Romans 7 teaches. What did you write in the small group curriculum? We strongly agree that it is a mistake and potentially harmful for Christians to read Romans 7, potentially harmful, for Christians to read this chapter as referring to the regular Christian life as it relates to sin. And I hope I can show you this. There are times when we come to the text and it deeply resonates with us that we Do not allow the argument which the writers are trying to accomplish persuade us. And sometimes we bring in our experiences to dictate what's being said. There's a reason why early church history reads it differently than we would today. So I don't come here saying this is Jacob's first new revelation to how you read Romans 7. And in fact, if I did do that, you should confront So what I would do is I would ask you, Reliance, is Jacob and Adam operating from the text? And is it from this text do we understand how we relate to sin? Because I believe Paul is trying to get the Jewish congregation to recognize the power of sin and its ability to even take that which is holy, righteous, and good, and to so distort it for its own advantage. And so often we minimize the severity of what sin can accomplish. And so with that said, I feel like the first point is just to prove my argument that this is indeed for an unregenerate Jew. Point one, who is Paul addressing in this text? Now I know that the reading for this morning was Romans 7, 13 through 25, but it comes within a context. So if you remember, it was several weeks ago. I made this point abundantly clear. When we read Romans chapter 7, verse 1, Paul makes it clear whom he's addressing. Read it with me. 
you have your Bibles, Romans 7, verse 1, and, or do you not know, brethren? This term here is used specifically, and elsewhere you'll find it in chapter 9, where Paul addresses it to the Israelite community. Brethren here identifies the Jewish culture which has struggled with replacing the centrality of the gospel with the Mosaic law. And he addresses his brother's Jewish community, brethren. And you can see it. He has to clarify it for purpose in verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren? For I am speaking to those who know the law. He has to make it a specific uh, declaration that, hey, Gentiles, let me deal with the Jews for a second. Let me come along them as a brother who is encouraging them to understand that they are no no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. Gentiles, you celebrate that you are no longer under the jurisdiction of sin, no longer under the jurisdiction of death. But give me a moment to address the Jew who has centered or has been tempted to bow the Mosaic law into the center of the gospel, and he's going to say to them, you are no longer under the jurisdiction. You read it with me. Verse 1, Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? And in light of chapter 6, those who are united with Christ are dead to sin, to death, and now the law. So this seems very important to recognize that as you read Romans chapter 7, you carry this logic through it. It's emphasized again in verse 4. Stay with me. Because I think what we're going to be doing is exegesis. We're asking the text, what is it saying? We don't read a love letter for someone else. It's written for a particular group, and we don't take somebody's love letter and say, well, this is meant for you. There's an argument here, and he's addressing this community. And so you see it again emphasized in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, now this is not of a term of rebuke that we see in Galatians. He's trying to encourage this Jewish community, which is trying to understand where the Mosaic law fits. You were also made to die to the law, to the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, no longer under the law, but under Him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We were, look at verse 5, while we, who's the we? Paul is now identifying himself with his Jewish brethren. We who had the law, were in the flesh. The sinful passions which we were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for for death. This does not make sense for a Gentile. For they did not receive the law. For they were unfamiliar with the law. They were not called brethren in the sense of their Israelite culture. They were actually considered aliens, or not aliens, but far away, pagans, Gentiles is the term they often get, lawless. The Jews had a community in which they identified with one another as brothers, as a brethren. And so in light of all this, the Jew is wondering, man, Paul, 
If the law, we're no longer under anymore, if we're no longer under it in light of our union with Christ, and the law only produced me to walk in more sin and to bear fruit for death, as we saw last week, they asked the question, is the law sin? You can see this in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it be, never be. And on the contrary, he has to make a defense. So that when he gets to Romans 7.12, he has to make the proclamation to an audience who's familiar with the law. The law is holy. The, law, the commandment is holy. It is righteous. And it is indeed good. Okay. You tracking with me so far? He has made abundantly clear who he's talking to. And I don't understand why it is when you get to verse 13, you set the Jew to the side and say, now it talks about me. And then there's further inferences in this context. So point one, I've asked the question, who is he talking to? Point two, I'm going to ask the question, I'm going to continue building this argument, but I want you to recognize what Paul is doing. He is trying to show the Jew... And through showing the Jew, he also shows the Gentile the incredible power of sin. It can take that which is holy, right, and good, and so distort it, and so use it to produce death for itself. And if this is true, there is only one hope that this world has to hope in. And I am more convinced that this principle must be understood in light of our world which tries to pursue wonderful things but yet without a redefined position before God they are helpless. So while it is addressed to a Jewish community I believe its information is profoundly important for a Gentile as well to understand. Two, the power of sin. And just so that we might not think that he is talking now generally to everyone, look what he says. He continues in verse 13 with this argument. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me, the law? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it may be shown to be sin by affecting my death, through which is good. The law being good, which resulted in my death, to show that this was sin. Let me continue. So that through the commandment, sin would be utterly sinful. This is not new information. You won't have it on your screens, but this is what he's argued all the way back in Romans chapter 5. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Therefore, where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. The law, being holy, good, and righteous, produced the fuller realization of how powerful sin was and is. That he continues in verse 14. Track with me. Now we're at our text today. We did it. We're we're plugging away on this. For we know that the law is spiritual. Stop. So this is... We read our Bible slowly. We're tracking an argument. We know. Who's the we? Brethren, who know the law. We know that the law is spiritual. A Gentile, that's like, yeah, a list of things to do and not do. But the Jew 
They recognized it was holy. It was given to them by God. It was not the man's wisdom. It was God's wisdom. Its origination was from the one who is spiritual. For we know that the law is spiritual. Who would know this? The Jew. But Paul says, then, I am of flesh. He identifies with his Jewish community again. Which, if you will mind considering with me again, verse 5, he's already said this. For we were in the flesh. If you see this in Romans 7, verse 5. We, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were roused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The Jew identifies They had this desire that they recognized that God provided them something that was holy, it was righteous, it was good, it was spiritual. And yet Paul says, I am of the flesh. And then he says these words. Sold into bondage to sin. Another way you can translate it. Sold in slavery under sin. If this is familiar and you've been walking with us through Romans, you recognize that Paul has already developed the theology of those who are under sin. Up to chapter Romans chapter 3, in verse 9, he has said, it is both the Jew and the Greek who are all under sin. Romans 6 14 through 15, he commends those who have hoped in Christ and in light of their union with Christ to change the way that they live. So that he writes in Romans 6, 14 through 15, For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Galatians 3.22 affirms that this is what the law did for those who had the law. The scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So that, they, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We're studying our Bibles. We're trying to come to the conclusion, what is Paul arguing? Just because it might resonate with you doesn't mean that you get to introduce yourself to it if it doesn't apply to you. The Jew had a much more aware understanding of this position than we would have. And that they were privileged to have the law, to see that it was holy, to see that it was right, and it was good, and to see the the power of sin in their life. Paul elsewhere Those who are of the flesh are sold under sin. It is consistently applied through all of his literature that this term applies to an unbeliever. I don't know where else you can go to show where a Christian is still under sin. And in light of Romans 6, this position is not even within Paul's vocabulary. That if you were to read Romans 6, 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 20, for when you were slaves of sin, 
you were free in regard to righteousness. In Romans 6.22, in light of our union with Christ, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, your fruit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. The Jewish community, now I feel like now I can go to the text. That is a wave of information that I feel is necessary because I do hold that it is a mistake and potentially harmful than to read from this point on, applying it to the Christian life. When Paul has spent abundant time up to this point arguing for the difference. In light of that, Romans 8 will sound so different if you accept it. Romans 7 is for the Christian. Rather, I think it's specific to the Jewish community who had the advantage, which Paul has already said from Romans chapter 2 and 3. They had the law, the embodiment of, of knowledge and of truth. This was an incredible advantage. Yet even for the Jew, the power of sin ruled. And This is where he gives three explanations for the Jew who lived under the law, what it was like to have the power of sin keep them from doing that which they hoped they could fulfill in the law. So with that mindset, we read the first explanation, while I agreed that the law was good, sin still controlled me. Look at how he argues. For I am, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law. Confessing that the law is good. It was so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. The Jew who look at the law, and this is why I spent 10 points last week talking about how the law is holy, while it is good, while it is righteous. The Jew who had received it saw it that way and enjoyed it for that way. But as they saw what glories look like, they were prompted from within to realize they can't fulfill its standard. For sin controlled them. And every time that they wanted to do that which they saw to be good, something took over. And the power of sin manipulated its power so as to continue to build up transgression. Second explanation is in 18 through 20. And sin is everywhere. And I am, while it controls me, it has captivated me by its power. For I know, in verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. I have a hard time for those to say, you are in Christ. And to read the result of what putting our hope in Christ, we have inherited now the newness of the Spirit. That this would apply to a believer. I know nothing good dwells in me, the Jew would say. That is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. I could see the law, but the doing the good is not. 
For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Jesus in his ministry. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Did they love the law? Absolutely. And did they teach it accurately? By Jesus' definition in Matthew 23, it was him who came before the religious leaders and he said to those who were teaching and holding the law, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do it and observe it. But his condemnation towards those who loved this law was what? But they do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They can taste the glories of the law, and which they can make and give life. But Jesus' condemnation to those people was what? You don't do it. Something still yet controls you from following it faithfully. And Paul himself, being a Pharisee, identifies with this. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is why Jesus would teach. You could tell a tree or a fruit by its tree, because that which it bears defines what's within. And Paul, is a, through another means of an illustration, is showing the internal mechanism of what a sinner who lived under the law would have done and the fruit that it still would produce. Verse 21, he gives a third explanation. He gives three and they're really all the same, but the third one, I believe, is the harshest in which he says, and first... Sin controls me in his first explanation. The second, it's held me captive. The third, he's more precise. I am a prisoner. I find, verse 21, in the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. See, that's, I guess maybe that's where I feel like, but that resonates with me, with, with the spirit within me who has convicted me of my sin. I want to do it. But Paul's not talking to that audience here, is he? I think I made it abundantly clear from Romans chapter 7. He is talking to a Jewish audience. Now, what I am saying is that I do believe the Christian does struggle with sin. So don't walk out and say that Jacob doesn't think we sin. I think Galatians 5 shows us that we do. But for the Christian, the way that we battle sin is by... The Spirit. But in Romans chapter 7, you have no mention of this until Romans chapter 8. And so, the principle that is evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law in the inner man. But I see a different law. Let's call this 
the law of sin in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, in which Paul would refer it to as the, the mindset. He's just changing his wording here. The law of my mind, the, the law of Moses, and make me a, a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. That he comes to finally this conclusion, point three. He's provided three explanations. And he comes to this conclusion after showing three times that it was the Jew who recognized better than all people. And point three is this, his conclusion that we were and we are helpless. This is why he argues in Romans chapter 3, excuse me, in chapter 5, while we were still helpless. If you want to know what that looks like, you read Romans 7. He's utterly helpless. He can taste the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God revealed in the law, and yet he's a prisoner unable to fulfill the joys in which one might find in following God's design. Utterly held captive by sin. And so while he will say he is helpless, he recognizes and builds before us in the reading, we are sinners. And it is the Jew who saw the law and through it only produced all more sorts of evils. And while we were enemies, enemies of God and His law, whether being holy and good and righteous, Paul comes finally to his conclusion, wretched man that I am. This is where he has arrived. You can be given the greatest advantage in the world. Gentiles, we get creation. We got, get the law of God revealed within our hearts. That it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to... We, he's put it within us and he's revealed it to us. It's obvious to us, but to the Jew. They had the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They stewarded the oracles of God. And yet, they themselves come to verse 24 and say, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, don't read verse 25 just yet. Do you realize, I want you to understand this. What does a wretched man do with that which is holy, righteous, and good? What does he do? He rejects it and despises it through the power of sin and acts contrary to it because he's held prisoner by his sin. Remember at Mount Sinai when God, after ten plagues, showed his incredible power. He drew them across the Red Sea, put a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side. He drew them to Mount Sinai and they were terrified when the very presence of God came and sat on Mount Sinai. Do you know what a wretched man does after seeing all those glories? After a few short days, after assuming that Moses was dead, they built a golden calf. 
and said, Behold, your God who has delivered you out of Egypt. This is what the sinner is stuck in. They can see the full glories of God and finally yet deny it because they are held captive. And this is why Paul can come and say, Wretched man as I am. But we could all assume, while having the law was an incredible advantage, having the very glories of God revealed to you through ten plagues and the Red Sea crossing. What if God was gracious enough, hear me, what if God was gracious enough to present His incarnated Word among us and He would incarnate through Christ Jesus coming into humanity, how would humanity in sin respond to the Messiah whom Jesus was predestined to come? How would humanity respond to that? The Jew. Do you remember? They were amazed by his teaching, that he was fully able to teach the intent of the Mosaic law. They were astonished when he was able to read the thoughts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They were amazed and astonished and overwhelmed at his ability to be compassionate and caring, not just to those who are of good health, but those who were sick. How did they respond in that moment? What does the wretched do? He says, crucify him. Wretched man that I am. You could have the full glories of God revealed to you. And if you're stuck as a sinner, you will despise it. The condition of the sinner is he is captivated. He is controlled. He is a prisoner. And this is why Paul comes to the conclusion in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death. And this is why Romans 7.25 becomes the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The power of the gospel that which Paul has been trying to teach from the very beginning is this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the one who can change and set the sinner free is Christ. And this is what he's trying to argue. And for a Jewish community who would say, no, it's the law. He reminds them. No, even under that. The power of sin distorted it. And let me remind you of Peter's sermon. Can you just hear this? Peter's sermon, one of his first sermons, and I introduced this sermon with. Men of Israel, he said when he got his chance. Acts 2, verse 22. Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you, 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 excuse me, just as you yourselves know. You who have the full advantage of the law. The law attested and bore witness that this indeed was the Messiah. But you still in your sin, 
This man, verse 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of a godless man and put him to death. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Peter then goes on to say, God knows you're helpless. And this is what sinners do. And God demonstrated his love towards you, even though while you were sinners, Christ died for us. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can read in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, but God raised him up from the dead. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why? For those of us who are in Christ, who have been unified with Christ, who are free. Do you not understand? The ability to be free from sin is not of your work. It is by the gift of God of the newness of the Spirit, which Paul is now trying to build the argument for, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, that he will conclude, as we will look joyfully in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? We're not in sin. We're in Christ we will treasure those things as we consider them ahead of us. So what? Right, we have the table before us. Well, how do we think through these things? I'm reminded of this. If sin is able to take that which is holy, righteous, and good, we can still see its power today. If he could do that with the law, he can do that with Christ before the Jewish community and persuade them to say, crucify him. I am sure that we are seeing its impact of sin on the world still to this day. In this last, what, 100 years, this nation has dealt with slavery. And even this last year, it has been good and right that our society rebuke racism. But here's the issue. If there's no realignment with God, sin will even use the holy, righteous, and good pursuits of ending racism for its own advantage. I find it interesting that William Wilberforce spent an entire lifetime trying to end slavery in England. Yet, if you were to sit down and ask him that the means by which he could actually get the people of the land to change their affections towards the slaves was not by law. He genuinely believed that unless something happened in the inner man, you could end slavery only to replace it with a new sin. And so his aim was to get people changed and properly aligned with God so that they could be free from sin and make decisions that were good for humanity. And so as a result of this, he looked at the churches and he was concerned. Because in his day, the churches were accepting a more process of having 
good morals within society and eliminating the views of doctrines of the church, which he called the peculiar doctrines. As I consider it today, we are in a generation that would be so much more committed to doing right than being doctrinally aligned so that we can do right. And he writes, it has been the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines, insensibly gained strength in his time. And there was this temptation to put Christian doctrines aside and to say, let's do good. But if that's true, Romans 7 says you can't take Christian doctrines and put them off to the side because the only means by which you can do good is if there has been a change within the heart. Because what do wretched men do? They'll even try to kill God. And so this peculiar doctrines of Christianity went more and more out of sight. As might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself also began to wither and decay, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with life and nutriment. My point? Organization Black Lives Matter? Sinful and evil. It stands against the principles of God. It latches onto something that is good and then distorts it for its own advantage, producing all sorts of evils. What will save our world from its wretchedness? People can pursue morality with great ambition with great resources, but it is going to accomplish nothing if the wretched man is not changed. And Paul knew this. The Jews realized this. And I pray that God would raise up a Christian community that would once realize this again. The power of sin takes that which is the most holiest thing, and it's able to distort it, Reject it and use it for its own advantage. We got to wake up. What your neighbor needs is Christ and him alone. And when we come to the table, the only thing that which changes our hearts to even be able to do good as God designed it is Christ. This is why from the very beginning, Paul has taught the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Who will change my heart? And change this uncircumcised heart? God. By putting within me God, the Holy Spirit, so that I might do what? Bear fruit for God. But if there is no change, we'll bear fruit to death. And all along the way, so many millions of people think they're doing good when they're running off a cliff. As a result of this, I pray that you would consider yourselves. When we come before the table, you were the wretched man. There were things that you, which you thought you could do good and you could do it well all by yourself. But over a period of time, you came to the realization there is no way you can live a life that would fully honor God. And the moment which Paul says, wretched man that I am, he's there. He's open for the gospel. Because all he has left is to trust in the righteousness of Christ for his salvation.
And when we come to the table, we recognize we were sinners, enemies, and helpless of God. And as a result of recognizing our wretchedness, we said, God, help us. And through Christ, we recognize that he has died for our sins. And based upon dying, on the sin, for the sins of, dying for our sins on the cross, he justified us through his perfect and precious blood. And God the Father raised him from the dead so that we might have hope that even though when we die, he who has conquered the grave has given us the opportunity to enjoy his future resurrection for ourselves. So that's what we commend when we go to the table. I would like you to receive the communion, either sing the song with me this morning or to consider it, but to remember what you were saved from and to whom you are now. In the light of knowing who you are now and what Christ has done, you can say, I am in Christ. I have, what Paul writes, peace with God. I stand in the grace which I exalt in the hope He's provided. Let's pray. Lord, it is the fatal habit to trust in ourselves. To think that we can accomplish your law, your standards, and to think more highly of ourselves than we really can. But your word has revealed this. None are righteous, not even one. None seek you. Held captive, prisoner by our sin. And Lord... We recognize that even though while we are in Christ, those of us who have responded to the gospel, Lord, I pray that uh, we recognize we struggle with sin. For as Paul says in Galatians 5, the flesh pits itself against the Spirit. Lord, let us by faith trust in the Spirit, flee from sin. But as we consider Romans 7 this morning, let us be faithful as a people to be thankful for what you have saved us from. You have redeemed the wretched man and given us hope in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. And I have the service come forward. Mm-hmm.